Welcome everybody back into Down the Line. As always, I'm your host Carson Breber, and today I come to you all in just complete and utter awe at the unrivaled dominance of Rafael Nadal, who today clinched his 13th French Open title, defeating Novak Djokovic 6-love, 6-2-7-5. It was an incredible performance on the women's side as well as Iga Sviatek earned her first Grand Slam title, obviously, at 19 years old, coming into the tournament as world number 54, and dominating people to a level that was somehow on par with Rafa. But I have to start with what we saw from Nadal, because this was the clashing of two titans, of two guys who, in my mind, will end as the greatest players of all time in this sport. And I, maybe foolishly, thought that Djokovic was going to come out on top in this match. I picked him to win in five. I probably stuck with that because I picked him before the tournament. And one of my bold takes coming into this year was that Rafa would somehow, unimaginably, not win the French for the 13th time. And I think we need to put this accomplishment in perspective because we will talk in detail about what made Rafa so remarkable on the court today. But we need to keep in mind that all four Grand Slams have been around since 1905. Some of them earlier, but that's when the Australian was introduced. Every year. We have these four Grand Slams, this year actually being one of the very rare exceptions because obviously Wimbledon was canceled due to COVID. Until the year 2000, so 95 years into this whole Grand Slam experiment, no man had won 13 of them. The record was held by Roy Emerson with 12, then Sampras came in and picked up his 13th, and obviously we can nitpick and say, what about Laver and Rosewall with the Pro Tour? Yes, but those are not the Grand Slams. And when Sampras won that 7th Wimbledon and 13th Slam title in 2000, it was just a moment of awe. It was unparalleled historical dominance. Nobody had won 7 Slams at a single tournament in the Open Era. Nobody on the men's side in history had ever won 13 Slam titles. And Rafa now has 13 French Open titles. He has equaled what was previously essentially unthinkable to do across all 4 Slams with a quarter of the opportunities. He's 102 at the tournament. And to put that in perspective, the closest man to Rafa as far as winning percentage at a single slam, and it's not even close, is Bjorn Borg. No one else approaches him. He's 49-2 and two at the French. So basically imagine if Borg played seven more French Opens and never lost, then he would be just two matches short of Rafa's current winning percentage. And I want to focus on Rafa's legacy. I want to focus on what happened on the court today, but I do want to take this outside the scope of tennis for a moment because inevitably when we talk about Rafa at the French, the conversation of where does it rank among the all-time achievements in sports comes up. And I really think that at this point, outside of probably Michael Phelps' 23 gold medals in the Olympics, just because no one else in the history of the Olympics has more than nine, that's pretty ridiculously unparalleled dominance. I think Rafa's accomplishment is the most incredible thing in the history of sports. And they showed a graphic on the NBC broadcast today with all of these incredible accomplishments up there. And one of them was Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hit streak, which I think in American history of sports is often the one that comes up. But the reason I don't think something like that compares is that there's the element of flukiness. All it takes is one hit a game, and that streak stays alive. And obviously, he was incredible. He hit 410 over 56 games or something. But this is over 15 years we're talking about, and every individual match is a battle. To win a tennis match is an accomplishment in and of itself. To win seven French Open titles without losing a set is on another level. And Rafa is obviously tremendous everywhere. He's a four-time U.S. Open champion. He is second all-time in Masters titles. He is now tied for the all-time lead in Grand Slam titles, and that doesn't only include the French Open. And he's incredible on clay court tournaments outside of the French, obviously. He has 11 titles at Monte Carlo and Barcelona and 9 in Rome, but there's just nothing like Rafa at the French. There is a feeling of invincibility. And when I was watching today, 
He is just so clearly tailor-made for clay, and it honestly looks like he grew up in it. It looks like a dolphin in the ocean or something. He just moves with the court. It looks like he's melded and become part of the red clay. He anticipates everything in a way that I almost don't understand, because that shouldn't have to do with the surface, but he's there at every ball so early. The heavy topspin, obviously, is so favorable on clay. That lefty heavy topspin pulling people off the court, it's punishing. And even though there was a decent amount made about how the conditions this year wouldn't favor him as much because the balls were heavier and there wasn't going to be as much kick up because it was also colder and there was some rain. And obviously none of that came into play. And when you think of Rafa, you think of the invincibility on clay. You think of the sort of warrior way that he carries himself where he's just this rugged fighter. You think about that bruising forehand. But what was most remarkable to me today, and Mary Carrillo put this very well, was that he was making Djokovic look slow. Keep in mind, maybe the best mover of all time. I think that if you talk about a hardcourt surface, Djokovic is a better mover than Rafa. Rafa made him look slow, and that is not hyperbolic, which is why the repeated drop shot attempts from Djokovic were just so inexcusable because there was this urgency from him to try to end every point, which is understandable because Rafa was at every ball, but at the same time, that's not how you're going to do it. You have to blow him off the court, which Djokovic was not capable of doing today, and at the same time, Djokovic was throwing, especially in the third set, just phenomenal pace at him. Just blasting balls at him, flattening out his forehand and controlling in that way. And it didn't matter because Rafa was out of every ball. The pace did literally nothing to affect him because he has so much time to get set and get comfortable on clay, especially with how far back he plays, and which I think is part of the temptation for Djokovic trying to hit the drop shots. But Rafa's just too quick. He can cover that court. That's why he's able to play back there. So even as Djokovic is hitting these beautiful, clean, aggressive balls, the defense into offense is automatic for Rafa. He'll run around all point, side to side, and then he gets a decent look at a ball, and he'll just gun a ridiculous forehand, and you're just like, yeah. Or Djokovic will hit a drop shot, a very good drop shot even, brings Rafa into the net, and he hits a lob, and it's a pretty good lob, and then Rafa will run back and just do something incredible off that. It's just, at every phase of the game on clay, he is the greatest to ever do it. I mean that truly. He's the best defensive player ever on clay. He's the best offensive player ever on clay. And that is a ridiculous thing to say, but it is true. And I think that if you look at the patterns throughout this match, the first five games sort of established how it was going to go. Because Novak really got off to a pretty good start, was hitting the ball really cleanly, but attempted four drop shots in the first game for really no reason. I think that he just decided earlier that it was going to be a strategy and never changed it. Yes, you're trying to run Rafa around, but again, it doesn't matter if Rafa gets to every ball and can punish you for it. And Rafa got to three of those four drop shots, and then Novak missed the other. And Rafa just played unreal defense in that game, came back from 40-15 down, and broke him. And so right away it was like, okay, Djokovic is normally comfortable in those circumstances. He's normally not going to blow a situation like that, especially if he's playing fine and Rafa was so exceptional, he just took it from him. And then you look a couple games later, Djokovic down love three, had three break points, and just couldn't consistently put balls away, and then Rafa was perfect on the other end. The next game, Djokovic was up 40 love on his serve at love four down, and just made some sloppy errors. There were times, I thought, where his timing wasn't quite there, but I thought for the most part, Djokovic hit the ball pretty well. It just didn't matter because of the guy on the other end of the net, and I do think he wasn't patient enough. And there were some telling stats about this. After two sets, he had 30 unforced errors to Rafa six and only let him 25-21 as far as winners go. So obviously he's forcing the issue, but it's as John McEnroe put it time and again, Rafa makes you go for more than you want to. And I don't think I've ever seen that more plainly on display than we did today because over their last 10 meetings on clay, these two had split. 
And we've seen Djokovic push Rafa around on hard recently, and I think today was the biggest reminder to me, and it's so timely because it comes after he had a poor performance on clay in Rome, probably the worst I've ever seen from him, going down to Schwartzman in a match that he really was never in. It seemed like he was scrapping the whole time, making mistakes, misfiring on his forehand, not serving well. And after all of that, when I thought that maybe there was a little bit of weakness in Rafa's game on clay, it was the most decisive, incredible performance I've ever seen from him. I was just blown away. I was imagining if I'm in Djokovic's position and I'm running a guy side to side like this and I'm blasting balls and he was serving well, especially in the third set when he started just pulling Rafa out wide with that serve to the backhand on the deuce side. And yes, he was opening up the court and he was winning some points that way, but Rafa even started anticipating that. And he had to hit that serve perfectly every time to have a chance, essentially, because if not, there was no room to work with because Rafa was going to recover. He was going to be at every ball. And eventually, when Novak just hit a neutral ball or a ball that Rafa decided he wanted to capitalize on, he was going to somehow blast a winner or an incredible aggressive shot that Novak maybe meekly got back and then Rafa finished the point off. And you just don't see Novak Djokovic outclassed like that. This is a guy who was 37-0 and on the year because I don't count a default against Pablo Carreño boost as a loss. He had won 37 straight matches to start the year. The decisive world number one. By far the best player on tour. And Rafa was so good, so dominant, that he got that guy to go crazy after getting back on serve down two sets to love. Because when Djokovic broke back, that was a huge moment for him. He was going nuts, the crowd was going nuts, and for the first time ever, a crowd at a Grand Slam favored Novak Djokovic over another member of the Big Three because they just wanted to see more tennis. You never see Djokovic in a position where he's getting outclassed at that level. And yes, again, he could have played better. It was too many drop shots. Sometimes I thought his footwork was a little bit questionable when he was trying to hit a big forehand. Looked like he kind of slapped at it, and I think he overhit a few because of that because he wasn't totally out of the way sometimes. They got a little too close to him. And again, he started hitting that serve out wide, and that was an effective adjustment. But what could he really have done? On his best day, he wasn't winning this match. And yes, the margins are always tight because the first set was 6-love. It was also 45 minutes and there were a bunch of games that Djokovic could have won in that set and that maybe if he doesn't make a couple of untimely errors, he does win because that was a theme for him as far as the untimely errors. He had that double fault that I was pretty sure was in on the first look facing break point at 5 on the third set, played a sloppy last game where again, he forced the issue and those same Themes from throughout the day came back to bite him because he just felt like he had to be perfect. But I've just never seen him overpower like that. And I feel so stupid for thinking that Rafa was in any way vulnerable because Djokovic has been the best player in the world. As I said, they've split their last 10 meetings on clay. There was the talk about the surface. There was the rafa Schwartzman match in Rome, and absolutely none of that mattered today. He's never been pushed five in a final, and he's won seven French Opens without losing a set, and he eviscerated Fed back near the peak of his powers, won three in love back in 2008, and all of that is true, but I still think that this is honestly the best match that I can ever remember playing him playing on clay because... Djokovic was not bad today. He was not great. He was not the same sort of controlling, dominant player that he has to be because you have to attack against Rafa on hard. The problem is you have to attack so precisely that you A, don't beat yourself, and B, somehow don't keep him in the point long enough to where he can turn it back into offense because it's so easy for him. All he needs is a sliver of an angle, and he's hitting an unbelievable shot that no one else in tennis can make. So I just don't know what to say other than I was completely and utterly blown away. 
I wanted a great five-setter. I expected a great five-setter, but I honestly feel like I still saw a good tennis match. And in some ways, I feel lucky that it went this way because I was reminded of how unapologetically dominant Rafa is on this surface and in this tournament because he slipped a little bit in that respect. And I think that this inevitably brings us into the GOAT conversation. And I'm not going to go deep into this because these guys are clearly still the two best players in the world and their careers are still going on, as is Fed's. And I did a top 10 men's tennis players of the open era back in June episode that you can go back and listen to if you want sort of my, the general sense of my opinions here. Because I have been a believer that Djokovic will end as the greatest of all time because of the level that he is still playing at. And because of the fact that he leads the head-to-head versus both Rafa and Fed, he is the best all-around player, in my opinion, in the history of tennis. I think it's very likely he ends with the slam record as well. But of course, it was Rafa who caught up with Fed today with 20. And in that episode that I just referenced, I had Fed 1, Rafa 2, Djokovic 3. Obviously not a permanent ranking because especially Rafa and Djokovic are still adding to their resumes. But the reason I gave credit to Fed was the unmatched combination of longevity and dominance, where he has the most top 10 finishes of all time. He's making slam finals 15 plus years apart, and he's still a top three player in the world at 39 years old. And at the same time, Rafa is now the one who has won two slam titles 15 years apart. And he obviously owns Fed. He has the best winning percentage ever, a record that was actually decided by this match. If Djokovic had won, he would have had it. If Rafa won, he would have had it. And... Rafa will probably pass Fed in every conceivable record that has significance other than weeks at number one, which at the same time I do think is a big one against Rafa because while Fed is at 310 and Djokovic is at 290 and he is building rapidly, and I did a poll on Twitter the other day of if the over-under for that should be at 400, would you go over or under? A vast majority of people were saying they expect Djokovic to have over 400 weeks at world number one, which is just unreal again when we put that in perspective with what seemed like Sampras's incredible record of 286 because that's just what the big three is doing right now. And the reason I think that this one matters for Rafa when we're talking about the GOAT conversation is that he has never dominated an era in the same way that Djokovic and Fed have. He has been number two to both of them, even though he was beating Fed consistently back in the late 2000s and the 2010 season, and that is a fair criticism. Fed was world number one for most of that stretch, and then pretty immediately, 2010 was Rafa's year, where he was dominant, where he won the three slams, where he was the year-long number one, and all that's fine and dandy, but then 2011, guess who dislodged him? It was Djokovic, who has been, over most of the past 10 years, the best player in the world, who has beaten Rafa a decent amount more often than not over that stretch, and... Rafa doesn't have that. There's a reason he has the most weeks of all time in the top two and is only seventh in weeks at number one, I believe. But at the same time, what he lacks in that era dominance, he has in the dominance of a single surface. 92% career winning on clay. Next best all time is Borg at 86%. Then Lendl at 81. Then Djokovic at 80. And so I mentioned, I think Djokovic is the best all-around player. I still think that he's probably going to end up as the GOAT because his five finals at the French are his least at any slam, and that ties the most at a slam for Rafa outside of the French. Djokovic is top four all-time in winning percentage on all three surfaces. He's top five in winning percentage at all four slams, whereas Rafa's only top five ranking outside of the French is the U.S. Open, where he's fifth. So they just don't compare in that sense. But at the same time, nobody beats Rafa on clay when it matters. Nobody. And he is also a four-time U.S. Open champion, and he does have the career Grand Slam. Obviously, the guy's incredible. 
Djokovic at the same time is the one pulling off two titles at every Masters in his career, where no one else has even won eight of the nine. So there's that contrast. And obviously, this is a constantly fluid and shifting situation because Djokovic just took the Masters record. He holds it by one over off, and they both have plenty of time in their careers left. They are obviously within a within one match's distance of holding the all-time winning percentage record at all times because, as I mentioned, that was determined by this final. Novak leads the head-to-head 29-27. to That's a very narrow margin. He has commanded it for the most part since he took it in the first place, but all of these things are liable to change. I do think, though, what becomes clearer every single day is that it is going to come down to these two and not Roger Federer. And if their primes had overlapped perfectly, it would have been fascinating because obviously Fed racked up a huge number of his slam titles in what was a weaker era. At the same time, when he has been slightly older, he has competed at a really high level with these two other guys, although they have both been better than him for the most part. So I just feel so lucky. We have the three best players of all time playing at the same time for 15 years, and that is something that you just have never had in any other sport, will never have in this sport or any other sport again. And that's why I don't want to make it about that. What I saw today was an immortal man. I saw a god. I didn't just see the king of clay. I saw a god. I saw a guy who could not be touched and who, again, was one with the surface. And maybe that's hyperbolic, but I just... I can't imagine looking at another athlete in that same way. I've seen Novak Djokovic at his absolute peak. It is unbelievable. But never have I so clearly seen the advantage a guy has based on the surface because it's stylistic. There's just a different comfort level, which is crazy because all these guys have played on on clay so many times, but it's the little things like when Djokovic keeps whacking at his shoes because clay gets stuck in there and they make a point out of that on the broadcast and he's slightly frustrated by it. And Rafa is just so clearly unfazed by anything like that. And maybe you could say Djokovic is scapegoating something there. He needs somewhere to take out his frustration. But I just think it's such a hilarious contrast because it's like everyone else is trying to adapt to fight Poseidon in the ocean. That's what it feels like to me. Like, there are all these incredible talents. And Djokovic, again, is probably unmatched in the history of sport as far as talent. But on clay, on their best days, he just doesn't compare. And especially at the French. So... Looking at this from Djokovic's perspective, I honestly don't think that there's much to be upset about here. You're 37-1 on the year. You're comfortably world number one, a position that you actually just helped yourself with here because Rafa's just defending points. You're gaining points. You fought your way to another slam final, and you got beat by a god. At the same time, you've beaten Rafa in your last 10 meetings not on clay. That goes back to 2013 since Rafa has beaten Djokovic somewhere other than clay. Seven years. And Djokovic is just the better player right now. He is. He's more consistently gutting out these tough wins. He's dominating people. And that's part of what's so insane about Rafa on clay is that Djokovic is the better player, but on clay today, it looked like Rafa was on a different planet. And I don't think that this was necessarily Djokovic's sharpest tournament. There were brief lapses, for example, against Tsitsipas when he was up two sets to love, was serving for the match, had match point, blew that opportunity Then looked like he was in an advantageous position again in the fourth set. Blew that. Of course, came out and closed it in the fifth. So I'm fascinated in how the battle goes for the rest of the year between these two. Because obviously, Djokovic was the one with the more consistent results. Rafa didn't get off to a jaw-dropping start to the year. At the ATP Cup, Djokovic was obviously the one who won the title and had the resounding performance there. And pretty quickly took his number one ranking back from Rafa. And I want to see how this continues to go. Because Djokovic has been the better player this year. I think he's the best player on the planet, but also we've seen there are times where he gets to a level of frustration with himself that you don't expect and where maybe he does make a little more errors than usual. And 
He also looked really bad in the first set against Carreño Busta, who is the kind of guy who can't blow him off the court, who can't punish him, who's just basically hitting neutral balls and waiting for Djokovic to beat him. And Djokovic did that. That is something he consistently does do. He beats people when he has to beat them. And today was an exception because he just wasn't in the same class. At the same time, this guy was undefeated until this point as far as matches that had an actual outcome. And maybe he didn't belong to stay there because they're having some close calls and there have been moments when he hasn't looked like he's at his absolute peak. But what a pleasure it's going to be watching these two guys. And we don't have that much tennis left probably just because the calendar is so complicated. But... It's going to be awesome to watch these two battle that out. And for the coming years and when Fed gets back, I just think we're so lucky. But they're so much better than everyone else. They're so much better than team. Oh, my God. Even in even in a straight set loss, Djokovic looked so much better than team or Zverev looked in that final. Those guys got so tight. They were so afraid of the moment. And yeah, maybe Djokovic didn't close out very well today. And again, he got a little sloppy and he had some costly errors. But it was still just a different level of tennis. He was beaten by a guy who would have destroyed any man or god that has ever lived on this planet. So I do want to talk about the women's side because Sviatek was unbelievable. She was dominant. She eviscerated the competition. Lost an average of two games a set over this tournament. Becomes the first player since Martina Navratilova at the 1983 U.S. Open to win a slam without losing more than five games in a single match And she does all of that at 19 years old. And she does not feel like a 19-year-old to me. She feels like a refined machine. Because when I think about the kind of teenagers who are going to go out there and win a slam, I think about someone like Osaka, who wasn't a teen but was 20 years old, who has this phenomenal talent but sometimes needs to learn how to rein it in. And Sviatek is the polar opposite of that because she's defined by her touch, her control, her ability to generate various spins. She gets that incredible racket head speed from down low so she can whip those topspin forehands a little bit like Rafa Nadal, who is her inspiration, which I think makes her great on clay. She has the variety with the slices and the drop shots, and that's what makes her special, is she doesn't have that one overpowering weapon. She's just really good at everything, and now she's about to be a top 15 player in the world at 19 years old when she was previously number 54 in the world, and it had posted some good results on the season, fourth round at the Australian, third round at the U.S. Open, but this is just a different level. I literally said earlier in this tournament, as she was making this impressive run to the quarters, that I, quote, don't think she has multiple times slam champ upside, or maybe it was even slam champ upside to begin with, like I see in an Anisimova or a Coco Goff or whoever, and guess who's the one holding a slam trophy right now? It's her. And the other young woman on the other end of the net who is also holding a slam trophy from the Australian is Sophia Kennan. So it is these more refined, consistent players who are doing it. But at the same time, Sviatek is different because she's attacking, she's dictating, she's just doing it in an incredibly controlled way. And she reminds me a lot in her skill set of Bianca Andreescu, who is another teen slam champ. And Sviatek is now the third to join that party as far as winning a Grand Slam title on the women's side as a teenager since Sharapova. It's her, Kuznetsova, and Andreescu. Fine company, no doubt about that. But I think the difference is, even though those players were also teens, they were established. Kuznetsova was the number 9 seed when she won the U.S. Open. Andreescu was the number 15 seed when she won the U.S. Open last year, with two big-time titles from earlier in that season at Indian Wells and at the Canadian Open. Even Sharapova at 17 was the 13th seed and was this prodigious talent. So if you're looking for a more apt comparison for Sviatek at the out-of-nowhere young woman winning, it's Ostapenko at the 2017 French, who was the world number 47, but was not nearly as dominant as Sviatek. She won her last four matches all in three sets, and if you look at how her career has gone since then, not exactly as planned when you're winning a slam at 20 years old. She made 
a quarter and another semi at Wimbledon since then. But three and a half years later, she's sitting at world number 43 right now, about to be dramatically surpassed by Sviatek. So the question is, which route does she take? Does she go the Ostapenko route? Does she go the Sharapova route to where she's an all-time great? And obviously Sharapova is different because she was even younger and it was even more special in that way. She also beat Serena, who was the woman to beat at that time. I just got to think that Sviatek's career goes better than Ostapenko's. Because if you look at how Ostapenko actually did it, it was kind of a magical, really improbable run. She was down a set and a break in the finals to Holop, who is not someone who is easily going to squander those leads, especially on clay, where she is the best player in the world on the women's side. Although, of course, Sviatek destroyed her 2-1. and one. But then Ostapenko was down a break again in the third, and it felt like she was just magically able to hit every ball as hard as she could and still get out of it and somehow win points like that, whereas Sviatek was the exact opposite. She felt so in control. She was defined by her control and her variety. She's at a positive winner-to-unforced error ratio in every single match. She was never pushed, never tested, and... That's just insane to win a slam that way at 19 years old. Normally, you have to have that kind of incredible, gritty performance where some magical things happen. And it's a little bit like her hero, Rafa Nadal, at 19 years old, who in his first time ever playing the tournament, won relatively comfortably because he's Rafa Nadal and he's just a different type of beast. I don't see that kind of overwhelming talent in Sviatek at the same time. I do think she's part of a great generation where Andreescu, should be the best player in tennis along with Naomi Osaka. Those are the two who I look to, but obviously we have Coco on the come up. We have Anisimova, who I think should be in that conversation if she can string together the consistent results, which she hasn't done this year, but did do at the French last year. And she had a similar performance in just destroying Halep. And I think that the question has to be asked for Sviatek as we look back on this incredible accomplishment. Does this slam count any differently because of the path? Because it's different on the men's side from the women's side here. Because... The men, we got the two titans. We got the two guys who we expected and wanted to be there in the final. On the women's side, there's no Serena, there's no Andreescu, there's no Osaka, there's no Barty, etc. A bunch of the top tournaments missing from the field. So does it count differently? I don't think so. It's weird. It feels really weird to have Sviatek facing off against two players well outside the top 100 in the slam quarters in Trevisan and then the slam semis in Podoroska. But she eviscerated them. She destroyed them. No one kept her out there for an hour and a half, and that includes Holop, and that includes Kennan. So it's strange. I don't know what to make of it in every way. I don't think that maybe she wins this tournament under normal circumstances, but at the same time, that's way too hypothetical to discredit her for this in any way. I am hopeful for the others to get back. I cannot wait till we have fully healthy women's tennis again because I don't think the tournament was as good as the men's this year just because there were so many unpredictable, weird results on the women's side where it didn't feel like we were always getting the best quality of tennis possible. Um, but a slam is a slam is a slam, and I hope it's the first of several for Sviatek, who now is on the map in a way that she has never been before, and I don't think is going to be thrown by that pressure because she is so composed, especially for a 19-year-old, which again, she just doesn't feel like. For Kennan on the opposite side of the net, at 21, she is now the only multiple-time slam finalist in the year 2020, and if there were any questions about the legitimacy of her Australian Open title, she has answered them with authority. She is a fighter. She is composed. She has already gotten back to the peak of the sport by making another slam final. And she is now there as a reliable force when no one else is. And yes, there was some slippage after the Australian. She had a couple of early exits in tournaments. And that's to be expected of someone of her age. But at the same time, to rally and say, I'm the one who's coming out of this draw. I'm going to beat Kvitova. And when all these other players can't put together consistent results, 
I'm going to be the one who comes out. It's incredible. And she is talented. She can attack. She can play really high-level defense. She's a great striker of the ball. And she's a phenomenal competitor, as I said. And mentally, she is there. She is tough. And that's why she was able to beat Muguruza in the Australian. She was able to ride out the highs and lows. And Muguruza was just a little bit more vulnerable to that, even though she was more talented. The difference in the French was there were no lows for Sviatek. She went down a break very early in the second and immediately got back and inserted herself as the dominant force yet again because that's just what she did. And I'm just fascinated to see how she holds up and how she performs back in some bigger tournaments on hard. And I don't know, I'm really fascinated because I do think to a certain extent the clay helps Sviatek because of the spin that she's generating and just the fact that it looks like she really likes taking time to get set and get comfortable on those strokes because, again, she does generate her racket head speed from really down low, so you might need a little more time to get that going than normal. At the same time, her timing is pretty down pat at this point, and it just shocked me because I've obviously watched her play many times before, and I just didn't expect to see this level of play out of her. So, good for her. I have another couple important takeaways just briefly from this tournament. Schwartzman is playing the best tennis of his life, making the finals in Rome, making the semis here, playing a competitive three-setter against Rafa. That was incredible. I thought that we saw really impressive stuff from Tsitsipas, the other men's semifinalist who lost, to go five with Djokovic and battle from a really precarious position. This is a guy who has not always been defined by his mental toughness or by his great performance in the slams, but he battled, and even though he went down easy in the fifth, to even get to that fifth set was incredible. He should not have been in that match, and it was a really rare feeling for Djokovic of, wow, you might actually choke this. You might have let an opportunity slip away when usually he's the one coming back from two match points down, wink, wink, at Roger Federer. My last takeaway is that Sinner was just incredible right now, and Honestly, of anyone who pushed Rafa, he might have been the one who took him the farthest because he really could have won each of those first two sets, was serving for the first set, and then for the first time, we saw a little bit of nerves from the 19-year-old, but he was dictating. He was pushing Rafa, who wasn't at the same level he was at versus Djokovic, but it's still Rafa Nadal on clay, and Sinner really could have won each of those sets. He was unafraid of the moment. He embraced it, and it was just such a funny contrast to Sebastian Corda, who had literally asked Rafa for an autograph after the previous match, and was a little bit older, but they're breeding them different in Italy. They are some confident, aggressive sons of guns. So, it was an incredible tournament. It has been an incredible stretch of tennis since the ATP returned. I think that this hammered home, first of all, how much better Rafa and Djokovic are than everyone else, and even still, how much better Rafa is than everyone else on the French clay, where I foolishly thought that maybe Djokovic could give him a run for his money. Obviously, I was wrong about that. And it was a magical story on the women's side as well. So all in all, certainly no complaints. It was a phenomenal tournament. And we got a few minor ones coming up this week, which, we'll t which we will talk about in the following episode. But that's going to do it for us here today. I've been Carson Breber. This was Down the Line. You're listening to Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com.